The flourishing man's gang was so fired up and rowdy that not one of them had heard me the first time I shouted for them to stop, second time either. Third one did the trick. They all looked to me, then to their leader, who'd eyed me like I'd sprouted horns. What did you say? He asked in a growl that made the hackles on my neck stand up. I swallowed hard, said it a fourth time. Stop. And his growl dropped even lower as he asked me, why? Because I promised him to burn and fish, I replied, and a whole lot of them start stared with their jaws aflat all except the flourishing man that is you know vernon he said coming so close that the bootleg whiskey on his breath set my eyes to watering i stammered that i did then my voice steadied and i spun a yarn about how mr fish was a friend of my father's and liked to tease me about not knowing how to handle negroes properly i said how i'd argued back earlier that day that yes i did and that i'd go out and hunt one down myself to prove it i even told mr fish had promised to let me use his whipping strap if i succeeded adding i reckon he'd be pretty sore if i showed up with this boy already whooped the flourishing man ran the leather of his own strap across his palm caught the end of it and snapped it tight i swallowed hard said i sure do want to join the junior clan once i start up here in tulsa and he snapped the strap again saying so you've never schooled it a shudder passed through joseph's body no sir i said but Mr. Fish told me all about how he handled that chicken thief up Benita Way and how Mabel shot an old man's eyes out. I stopped then, for something had eased in the flourishing man's countenance. He even chuckled, saying, I doubt Vernon Fish ever will love a girl so true as he does that colt of his, which set a few of them around Joseph to tittering. Then he yanked Joseph's head up by the chin and said, What do you think, boy? Should I leave your hide to Vernon? Joseph said nothing. You answer him, boy, one of the ununiformed men shouted. Another hauled back and kicked Joseph in the stomach so hard the air rushed out of his mouth. But Joseph kept his eyes down and did not move. I sure would appreciate if you let me handle this boy myself, I said, stepping closer to the floor, shine man. I've been struggling lately, bucking rules and acting all kinds of awful. If you were to let me deliver him like I promised, it might prove to my pop and Mr. Fish that I'm on track for real. And, well, I'd just be awful grateful, sir. The flourishing man looked from Joseph to me, said, Who's your pop? Stanley Tillman, I replied, and he tipped his head sideways and looked surprised, saying, The same Stanley Tillman who sold me my Victrola last year? That's him, I replied. The one Vernon's been trying to bring into the clan for months, even though he's married to an Osage squaw? I told him yes, then I felt the thin ice under my feet starting to crack as the flourishing man came at me. And just when our chests were near close enough to touch, he laughed and slugged my arm so hard my che- teeth clattered. Why didn't you say so, half-breed? He boomed. Your pop saw the light and joined up tonight. He's one of us now. Pop had filled out his application, paid his fee, and joined the clan right there on the courthouse steps in front of God and Vernon Fish and the flourishing man, whose real name, I learned, was Reggie Gould. Reggie told me the whole tale with relish, saying how Pop's views on Negroes being harmless had changed soon as he saw the first armed carload of them drive up to the courthouse, and how Pop said that if they were willing to confront the sheriff with guns, they surely wouldn't hesitate in doing the same with him at his shop, which sounded close enough to Pop's story of reasoning for me to believe it was true. But bad as it hurt to hear him tell all about Pop's change of heart, some good came out of the exchange. For Reggie and his boys let me drive off without harming the Tylers or Joseph, believing as they did that I was about to deliver all three to Vernon Fish. That's how I ended up driving out to the outer edge of the city like a madman, desperate to get Joseph and the Tylers safe. Turned out I'd have no choice but to stop again, 
when a second body turned up in the street with a fist-sized hole blown out of its chest. For even after all the trouble we ran into so far, my instinct was to pick it up and see that it was buried proper. But Joseph peeked up as the truck slowed, and when I pointed to the corpse, he said, It isn't safe, Will. Keep driving, please. His voice bobbled about, which was understandable given that he had nearly been done to him not five minutes prior, and there was no question it would be risky to stop. So I drove on near a half mile until the next obstacle presented itself, only that time it wasn't a corpse, but a living man, a living man who had hit with a truck. It happened at the intersection of 5th and Detroit. He'd only intended to step out on the street long enough to flag me down, that much was clear, but he misjudged my speed and distance by a good 10 feet, so there was no way I could avoid him. Fortunately, I only clipped his hip. The man in the shotgun he'd been holding spun through the air separately and landed hard on the ground. Then came an awful silence, followed by the sound of Mrs. Tyler's sobs and moaning from the street. I told Joseph to stay put and got out. Judging by his grease-stained overalls and the black under his fingernails, the struck man was a roughneck. That didn't account for the red spot blooming on the leg of his pants, though. Furman and Tulsa, there was no mistake blood, mistaking blood for oil. Help me, he wheezed. Please. Then his gaze jerked to something past my shoulder. It was Joseph standing behind us with his legs set wide and the rust next shotgun aimed at its owner's head. Give me my gun and get away from me, you... There's a racial slur here that I'm not going to say. The roughneck hissed. Joseph pressed the muzzle to the man's cheek, whispering, How many have you killed with this gun tonight, sir? I leaned out, away out the, the sheer instinct and contemplated telling Joseph not to shoot. But given all we'd seen that night, it didn't seem right. Me trying to influence his decision one way or the other. So I rose, silent, and stood at his side. The man's dry throat clicked. Joseph's finger came out of the trigger guard, flexed, and went back in. Might be this is my chance to even up the score a little, Joseph muttered. Though whether to me or the roughneck, I couldn't say. But his hand trembled so bad that I feared he might fire whether he meant to or not. He squeezed his eyes tight, opened them, recited down the barrel, and spoke so there was no doubt he was talking to me. I spent my whole life forgiving white folks, Will, and I'm so very tired of it. Then he lifted his head from the sight, lowered the shotgun, and carried it back to the truck without another word. Who shot you? I asked the roughneck once Joseph had got back, got safely in the back. He was silent. I poked my toe into the flesh of his leg near the bullet hole. He gritted his teeth, said, I ain't telling you nothing, boy. It was a poor choice. I pressed the sole of my shoe down square over the bullet hole. He roared in pain and set about expanding my repertoire of curse words until I lifted my foot to stomp him again. And that he, at that he quieted and held up his hand, breathing ragged. And he feigned contriteness, saying how he was bleeding bad and couldn't move because the truck had broke his other leg. And wouldn't I please help him? Only if you tell me the truth, I replied. I bet it was a white man who shot you, wasn't it? He spit on my shoes and told me to go to hell. Only I went to the truck instead to fetch twine and a handkerchief Reggie had stuffed in Joseph's mouth. And I caught that roughneck as he cursed and howled and tried to drag himself away. I tied his hands tight behind his back and stuffed the handkerchief in his gob. For it was at that moment that I realized how very much I wanted to be a righteous man. Just like I told Vernon Fish low those many weeks ago. And a righteous man would never leave another human being to bleed to death in the street. Of course... A truly righteous man would take in pains to keep the roughneck's ruined legs from knocking against the truck bumper as he loaded him in, so I can't say I was quite there yet. But I kept that miserable so-and-so alive and did no permanent harm, which in my book was at least a step in the right direction. 
The church was dark and locked up tight when we arrived, and the clouds overhead had cleared enough for the moon to shine on the empty roadway. Still, there were dark shadows and corners aplenty. No one came when I knocked, so I knocked again, and the lock turned and hinges squeaked at the door cracked open. I recognized the oval-faced girl peeking out. Her name was Claire, and like Addie, she was a year ahead of me. Unlike Addie, she wasn't pretty, not in the standard sense at least, but there was something pleasing about the way her strong features fit together, especially with the electric light casting a halo's glow around her nest of disheveled brown hair. Yes, she said. My words tumbled out ahead of my thoughts. Please, Mr. Tyler's hurt real bad, and Mrs. Tyler, she's... Before I could bumble on, Claire lit up with recognition and opened the door wide and called me by my name. And there was such a sweetness about her that my tongue tangled and my eyes filled with tears. And I feel no shame in saying that, for it was a moment of true grace. Where are they, she asked. Can they walk? I pointed in the direction of 7th Street and said I didn't think so. Then Claire told me to drive the truck across the grass and park close to the door. Once I'd done as she said, she came out of the church with a man and a sturdy woman in a nurse's cap, both of whom climbed inside the truck before I got the engine shut off. I heard the nurse talking in a worried voice and Joseph saying something about a rifle butt. Then the man went back inside the church and fetched a makeshift stretcher made from a sheet and two mops. Jack Rabbit quick. He and Joseph loaded Mr. Tyler into it and carried him inside. That surprised me, I'll admit, for I'd been raised into a world where white folks' needs always came first. It shocked the roughneck, too, and he sputtered and coughed around the cloth in his mouth while old Mrs. Tyler watched. Then Claire climbed in and introduced herself, and the roughneck quieted enough for her to take out the handkerchief. And he plastered a false smile across his face and commenced to lying, saying how the Negro boy who just carried the old man away had shot him and how I'd run him over with the truck after that and stepped on his wounded leg to torture him. Claire looked at me at to, as if to ask if it were true. I hung my head and said I'd hit him with the truck all right, but it was had been an accident. She didn't inquire about the torture, only told the man that there was a doctor inside who could tend to his injuries until morning. Then the church door opened again, and a trim and dapper negro with rolled-up sleeves stepped out of the church. He's been in shot in the leg, Dr. Butler, Claire said. The doctor climbed into the truck, ignoring the man's curses and slurs, and when he tried to touch the roughneck's leg, and the fool commenced to screaming bloody murder, Claire picked up the handkerchief and stuffed it back into his mouth so tight that him and his grunts were muffled, which was a relief to everyone, most especially Mrs. Tyler. Her eyes sparked to life, and she asked if I wouldn't please take her inside to see her husband. I said it would be my pleasure and helped her out of the truck, bending low so she could get my arm across my shoulders for support. We made our way into the church, down a set of stairs, and through a door that swung open when I tapped it with my toe. And it's a good thing I'm built sturdy, elsewise the blur that flew across the room into my chest would have knocked Mrs. Tyler and me down like so many ninepins. The smell of roller skate grease and the feel of small arms squeezing me tight hit all at once, so that my heartbeat skipped about and the shadow over my soul lifted like a thousand sparrows taking flight. And I reached down with my free arm and lifted Ruby up and I hugged her hard. Ow, 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 she squealed. You're going to squeeze my guts out, Will Tillman. Only I didn't let go, and neither did she. Rowan. A spark lit up inside Joe when he mentioned the body, bright enough so I could see it through his wrinkles and the morphine and the pain. I forgot all about being in a nursing home and the cookies and even James and asked him who it was. I'm sorry, young lady, but I can't tell you, Joe said, which felt like the sound a bird makes hitting a window, but short of threatening a dying old man, there wasn't much I could do about it. James asked him, 
You can't or you won't. Both. I swore to my father at his deathbed that I'd carry a secret to my own grave, and there's no breaking a deathbed oath. Out in the hall, a feeble voice started hollering for Mary to take him home. Joe sighed. That's my roommate, Herb. Mary died five years ago. He forgets. But tell me, what have the two of you learned on your own? I never did promise not to help other folks find the truth for themselves, and maybe I can steer you in the right direction. Which was better than nothing. So James and I traded off telling Joe about the Polk directory and the house title and everything else we tracked down. But how did you find out about my father in the first place? Joe asked. From the receipt, James said. Receipt? Joe brought the back of his bed up higher. The Victrola receipt he made out to someone named Jay Goodhope. It was in the skeleton's wallet, I said. Here. I slipped the receipt out of the envelope to, in my purse and handed it to Joe. See? Joe's fingers trembled as he pulled it close and squinted. Damn it, he said, fumbling for his reading glasses on the tray. I picked them up for him and held the receipt while he put them on. He mumbled thank you and took the receipt again, making a sound that was a sob and a laugh all at once. Then he traced each word with the fi- and figure with his fingertip whispering, I can't believe you found it. You knew about it? I said. His head nodded on the thin stalk of his neck. I knew of it. It's just not something I ever thought I'd hold in my own hands. You've made me an old we've made an old man very, very happy. Which wasn't exactly what James and I had set out to do that morning, but it felt good anyway. And when he asked Joe if I knew who Jay Goodhope was, he nodded again and said, Of course, he's my namesake, Joseph. James and I locked eyes as Joe went back to reading the receipt. Joe, James said, Do you happen to know if Joseph was any relation to Della Goodhope? Joe was still running his fingertips over the paper like he couldn't believe it was there. She was his mother, he said, and Ruby was his sister. James took out his phone and held up the picture of William Tillman for Joe to see. And this is your father, William? Yes, though he went by Daniel after he moved to Kansas City. I've seen this portrait before on the bookshelf at my grandmother's house. Wherever did you find it? In Central High School's 1921 yearbook, I said. He was a junior then, but why did he change his name? Joe smiled. Dad dropped out of school and moved to KC after the ride in 21. He wanted a fresh start, and I suppose changing his name was part of that. He did well for himself, too. Sold Victrolas and wax cylinder dictation machines and radios and hi-fis. Say, you don't happen to have Joseph's picture, do you? From the yearbook, James asked. You mean he was still in school, too? Joe took a breath to speak, then stopped like he was afraid he was giving too much away. But before long, he got this what-the-hell kind of look and said, That's right, only he didn't go to Central. Joseph was a senior at Booker T that year. Now we were getting somewhere. If you were named after him, they must have known each other pretty well, I said. They did, Joe folded the receipt back up. Rowan, would you be so kind as to bring me the photograph in the gilt frame over on the windowsill? I picked up the picture he motioned to and saw a younger version of Joe standing next to a wrinkly black woman in sweatpants and a naughty-by-nature t-shirt with the OPP album cover on it. That's Ruby and me back in 2001, Joe said, June 1st to be exact. I tried to show the picture to James, but he was looking for something on his phone. Are she in that shirt for real, I asked. Every inch of them, Joe laughed. Ruby lived out loud like no one else I've ever known. James was still mumbling to himself. Let me just... Here! He shoved the phone in front of me. The image was of a yellowed page with three photographs in heart-shaped frames. The top and bottom pictures were of girls. In the middle was a serious-looking young black man with chubby cheeks and something written beside him that I had to enlarge the picture to see. A better soul you'll never meet no matter where you roam. His mind is sharp, his manner sweet, his heart true to his home. Joseph Goodhope. Have you found him? 
Joe looked so eager that James handed him the phone and let the picture speak for itself. There he is, Joe said softly, just like Ruby and Dad described him. You mean you've never seen him before? I asked. Joe shook his head slowly. No, Joseph died young, but Ruby lived a good long life. She was 90 years old in that picture, though you'd never have known it to meet her. She worked as a nurse until they made her retire at 75. After that, she kept busy with volunteer work. She died in her sleep just a few weeks after her 97th birthday, only a month after she bought me my last pie. The skin on my forearms prickled. Pie at the Nut and Honey Cafe. Tilda's peach pie at Arvin's funeral. Joe, did you say pie? I asked. His smile was wistful. Indeed, I did. Ruby made one for us every year on the 1st of June. In the beginning, she'd take a Midland Valley train up here to Paheska and leave them on Granny Catherine's doorstep. But after Granny died, she brought them to me. Joe lowered the picture, closed his eyes, and sighed. Best peach pie in the whole wide world. Mom was in shorts and a tank top sitting cross-legged on the back porch swing when I got home. Beaded drops of condensation dotted the untouched glass of iced tea beside her. When I came through the gate, she pointed toward the open back door house. Geneva's here, she said, which wasn't exactly new since I'd already seen the van. Hammering started up. Mom ignored it. I sat beside her and asked what was going on, and Mom told me how Geneva had called her at work, asking to be let in the back house to check on something she'd overlooked. Mom had called me, but I turned my phone off after deleting the voicemails about Arvin that morning, so she'd come to let Geneva in herself. Now, Mom said when she was done explaining, tell me what you've been doing all day. There was no point in lying. I told her about Paheska. You were supposed to be resting, she said, but I'd probably done the same thing if I were you. A man in white painter's overalls came out of the back house. He laid a floor plank against on the grass, saw Mom and me, and gave us an awkward hello before he went back inside. The hammering started up again. Board by board, he carried out the subfloor, lining each piece up carefully. Mom's legs stayed tucked underneath her. I slipped off my sandal and pushed us back and forth in the swing. They're tearing things apart, I said. Eat your heart out, Captain Obvious. Mom dipped her finger in the pool of water gathering at the base of her glass. It seems that way. We kept swinging. The man kept bringing out planks, and Mom kept not talking. It was so weird that I ended up asking her if I could visit Arvin's Aunt Tilda the next day just to kill the silence. You haven't asked my permission for things like that in a long time, Mom said. Why start now? I don't know, I asked, or I said. Maybe it's not so much that I'm asking as much that I wanted to tell you. There was only one rectangle left to go before the floor was completely reassembled on the grass. Mom pinched the middle of her shirt and pulled it away from her belly. We were both sweating like crazy. I like that, she said. It's nice. But there's something else I want to ask you. You don't have to answer right now. In fact, you should think about it as long as you'd like, at least overnight. There was nothing to do except say that I would. Good, Mom said. What I want to know is you're sure that Rand Ra Jerry Randall used a racial slur and pushed Arvin out of anger instead of self-defense. Would you be willing to go and speak to the district attorney with me? Maybe even testify what you saw and heard in court. The hammering stopped. The swing stopped. Geneva carried out the last board herself and waved Mom and me over, saying, I'm glad you're here, Rowan. Think about it, Mom said. Then she got up and Geneva told us not to come down off the porch. You'll have a better view from there, she said, climbing the steps to stand next to us. She leaned over the rail. The man, who Geneva never did introduce, must have been her gallbladderless assistant, stood off to one side. Sure enough, see that? Geneva pointed toward a dark stain that covered the board farthest away from us on the left and parts of the one around it. That's where our skeletonized friend bled out. It's a typical spread pattern for extinguishing due to head trauma. But look. 
She pointed to a separate stain midway of the opposite side of the reconstructed floor. That one's from a different victim, someone who received significant injury, bled out, then dragged himself away. They never made it all the way across the room, though. See how their blood trail stops two feet short of the other one and spreads again? Mom was quiet at my side. What does it mean? I asked. Geneva rubbed her palms against her cutoffs and shrugged. It means I should have checked under the floor sooner, but it also means we know more than we did before, and in my book, that makes it a good day.